0: words which i'd like to draw your attention to this afternoon are found in the book of leviticus and we'll be looking at chapter 10 of that book leviticus chapter 10 just by way of introduction so far in the book of leviticus uh, we've examined the five sacrificial offerings uh, and that was in the first 7 chapters And then in chapters 8 and 9, we saw how the priesthood itself was inaugurated. The priests were ordained and they went through a whole process of sanctification. And at the end of that process, the glory of God descends and the the, the sacrifices that were placed upon the altar are burned up as a sign that God had fully accepted those sacrifices. But the effectiveness of the priestly ministry was short-lived. For on the same day that God had appeared to Israel in all of His glory, the priests fail. We see in chapter 10 that two of Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, revo- reverse the, co- uh, the course of following God's commands. And instead, they do something foolish, which He did not command. And that results in their deaths and even more consequential... Defilement of the temple. And let's read of that account in Leviticus chapter 10. It says in verse 1, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective firepans, and after putting fire in them, placed incense on it, and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And the fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them. And they died before the Lord. And then Moses said to Aaron. It's what the Lord spoke, saying, by those who come near me. I will be treated as holy. And before all the people, I will be honored. So Aaron, therefore, kept silent. Moses called also to Mishael and Elzaphan, the sons of Aaron's uncle Uziel, And said to them, come forward, carry your relatives away from the front of the sanctuary to the outside of the camp. So they came forward and carried them still in their tunics to the outside of the camp, as Moses had said. And then Moses said to Aaron and his sons, Eleazar and Ithamar, do not uncover your heads nor tear your clothes so that you will not die and that he will not become wrathful against all the congregation. But your kinsmen, the whole house of Israel, shall bewail the burning which the Lord has brought about. You shall not even go out from the doorway of the tent of meeting, or you will die. The Lord's anointing oil is upon you. So they did according to the word of Moses. The Lord then spoke to Aaron, saying, Do not drink wine or strong drink, neither you nor your sons with you, when you come into the tent of meeting. So that you will not die. It's a perpetual statute throughout your generations. So as to make a distinction between the holy and the profane. And between the unclean and the clean. And so as to teach the sons of Israel all the statutes which the Lord has spoken to them through Moses. Then Moses spoke to Aaron and his surviving sons, Eleazar and Ithamar. Take the grain offering that's left over from the Lord's offerings by fire. And eat it unleavened beside the altar, for it is most holy. You shall eat it, moreover, in a holy place, because it is your due and your sons due out of the Lord's offerings by fire. For thus I have been commanded. The breast wave of the wave offering, however, and the thigh of the offering, you may eat in a clean place, you and your sons and your daughters with you, for they have been given as your due and your sons due out of the sacrifices of the peace offerings of the sons of Israel. The thigh offered by lifting up and the breast offered by waving, they shall bring along with the offerings by fire of the portions of, the, of fat to present as a wave offering before the Lord. So it shall be a perpetual thing, do you and your sons with you, just as the Lord has commanded. But Moses searched carefully for the goat of the sin offering, and behold, it had been burned up. So he was angry with Aaron's surviving sons Eleazar. And Ithamar, saying, Why did you not eat the sin offering at the holy place? For it's most holy, and he gave it to you to bear away the guilt of the congregation, to make atonement for them before the Lord. Behold, since its blood had not been brought inside into the sanctuary, you should certainly have eaten it in the sanctuary, just as I commanded. But Aaron spoke to Moses, Behold, this very day they presented their sin offering and their burnt offering before the Lord. When things like these happen to me, if I had eaten a sin offering today, would it have been good in the sight of the Lord? When Moses heard that, it seemed good in his sight. Father, our, our desire is to learn from this chapter. Lord, we don't want to just learn intellectually, we don't want just more information. Lord, we want our hearts to be changed, and we want convictions to be deeply established. And I pray that, Spirit, you would do a a powerful work. That we would live out as individuals in a church what you declare in Leviticus 10.3. That we would treat you as holy. And before all people, we would honor you. Help us towards that end. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So, In order to make more money, businesses have discovered that it's wise to appeal to their customers, to give them what they want. They have to sell their products in order to sell their products. They have to convince their the people that their product is what they need or at least what they deserve. They need to appeal to the customer because the customer is always right. So we hear. And as products of our culture, many churches have embraced that same mindset. In order to grow their institutions, they craft their worship services by appealing to the customer. All the elements of the worship service become guided by this principle. What is it that people want? That includes the music. It includes the buildings and its its decor. Even the preaching, the programs. All are guided by the principle of what will best appeal to people. In his opening address uh, at this year's Shepherds Conference, uh, John MacArthur noted the most common words that pastors use to describe their ministries today. And it it struck me. This is what he said. These are the list of words. Relevant. Real. Authentic. Missional. Exponential. Cool. Disruptive. Innovative. Multi site, multi ethnic, multi anything, cultural, contemporary, millennial, no eschatology preferred, post church, post truth, intentional, formational, inclusive, heroic. So that is the current lingo of pastoral ministry today in our culture. And one can't help but see the sharp contrast from those words and what we see in Leviticus chapter 10. And we can't miss this because although Leviticus, the whole Levitical system was created for man's benefit, for man, it was created so that man could dwell in near to god despite that it is not centered around what men want that is not the driving principle of worship according to this book rather what we see as the driving principle of worship is what we see in chapter 10 verse 3 if i could i could if i were to get a tattoo i would get Leviticus chapter 10, 3, tattooed on my eyeballs. Which I know can't happen, but you get the point. Then Moses said to Aaron, It is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. And before all the people, I will be honored. And as we look at this chapter as a whole, one of the things that will stand out in the chapter is that there are four principal truths regarding the Levitical priesthood, and these truths have direct implications upon our lives as Christians. So look at those four principal truths. The priest's principal aim, the priest's priority of holiness, the priest's Perpetual statute and the priest's personal weakness. And again, these truths that we see in Leviticus are what should define our present approach to worship and ministry as well. And so they have direct application to us today. Let's look first of all at the principal aim of priests that is presenting God as holy to the world. So again, the first issue that needs to be addressed, I think, as we look at this passage, is what exactly is it that Nadab and Abihu did wrong? Why was God so upset that he would consume them with fire? What a, what a way to perish. Well, the text says that they had offered strange fire, but it doesn't explain... What was strange about the fire? One explanation is that instead of taking fire from the um, altar of burnt offering, they took fire from someplace else. So they made their own fire and used that to offer up incense to the Lord. In that sense, it was strange. Another possibility is they were simply offering up their own personal incense offering. Because it mentions that they took their own respective firepans and then they used those to offer up incense. However, we see that God gave them no instruction to do so. Right? That's, that's why He kills them. It's because they did what He did not command. This was simply an act that they took upon themselves to perform. Now, offering up incense was actually a part of the Worship in the tabernacle. We see incense actually get described in both Exodus and Leviticus. But this part of the worship service was only something that the high priest was tasked to do as he presented that incense before the altar of the Holy of Holies. And essentially they were taking on that role. They were modifying an aspect of worship... That they had no business, first of all, being involved in or even modifying. They were being innovative. And notice the phrase, verse 1, which he had not commanded them. And this, this is set in direct contrast to what we saw in chapters 8 and 9 where it said, and they did as the Lord commanded, and they did as the Lord commanded, and they did as the Lord commanded. And that's why God's presence came among them. And then immediately afterwards, the next chapter, which the Lord did not command them. And so the priests had done well, well, until they decided, decided to get creative. But again, the problem wasn't just that they were being created, creative, sorry. But what they were actually communicating about God. Which is why he says before all people I will be. Treated as holy. God takes very seriously. What we communicate to others. About him. That's the point of this passage. God takes very seriously. What we communicate to others. About him. But what was so wrong about modifying an aspect of the tabernacle worship? They failed to honor God as holy. An intolerable offense. Because we need to recognize that the whole point of the Levitical worship system, the tabernacle worship service, is about worship. It's about declaring God's worth, God's majesty, God's holiness. But notice what they did. Instead of thinking about what God had commanded, they were thinking about themselves. What they wanted to do. What seemed interesting to them. They were following their own desires, not the Lord's. They were thinking of themselves. They were doing again what they wanted, not what He had commanded. They were not worshiping God. They were defiling his sanctuary. And the chances are they, they didn't think about that. They probably didn't do this in order to be defiling, but the fact that they took it upon themselves to do this shows that they weren't worshiping God. It's the opposite of worship, despite what they intended. And again, what this tells us is that we, we don't have freedom to worship any old way that we want to. We don't get to approach God on our terms. And worship is not about what we want, but rather what is it that will bring the most honor and the most glory to God? How is it that we can help People understand who is this God that we worship. That's the aim of worship. Genuine worship has God at the center, not our preferences, not our desires, not not what's convenient for us. The whole seeker sensitive model for church is really a violation of this principle. Because at its core, it's, it's asking, what is it that people want? What is it that's going to draw people to this institution? And so a whole generation of church attenders have been trained to think of church the same way they think about shopping. What is it that they want? What appeals to them? Rather than what is going to most honor the Lord? I mean, just, just think about the conversations people have about worship music. How often is it that somebody says, I like that song, because those truths are richly declaring the character and glory of God. Now, what is it that we usually talk about? I like that tune. It appeals to me. It makes me feel good. Not that, not that it's wrong to say those things. But what is it that really draws us? What is it that we are seeking in our worship services? Is it the honor and glory of God or is it what is best for us or what we think is best for us? But we must recognize that this goes way beyond just a worship service. This has implications for all of life. For the principle established in Leviticus is how priests should Behave in the presence of God. And so where is the presence of God today? We don't have a tabernacle. It's not in a church. Well, it sort of is. It's in every believer. We're indwelt by God, the Holy Spirit. So how is it that Priests, New Covenant priests should conduct themselves before a holy God. So you recognize that this command by those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. And before all people, I will be honored has implication for every aspect of our lives, every minute, every place, every word that we speak, every action, every thought of the person who is indwelt by God this passage has implications for. All our lives are worship. And which is why in all of our lives we seek to honor God. We, we honor God by honoring authorities. First Timothy six, 1 Timothy 6.1 All who are under the yoke as slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. This is why we pursue sexual purity. 1 Corinthians 6.20 For you have been brought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. It affects our ministry. Whoever speaks is to do as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. So that in all things, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. You see what... these these apostles are saying this affects all that we do. It affects what we're doing right now. What we're thinking about. What I'm saying. It affects everything, right? 1 Corinthians 10 31. So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So this principle of I will be honored by all people and treated as holy affects every Everything about us. And so this is a question we must wrestle with. In my life, do I treat God as holy and honor Him before all men? In my home. At work. On my commute. When I'm on vacation. After work. In my life, do I treat God as holy and honor Him before all men? Now, we don't want to misunderstand this principle either and take it too far. Failure to God, to honor God consistently, does not mean that a Christian is going to lose their salvation if they fail to honor God. Because I don't think Nadab and Abihu were sent to hell for what they did, but they were severely disciplined. A believer is not going to go to hell because they fail to honor God. Their salvation is secure in Christ. But it does affect our lives. It does affect our ministry. Because we can still quench the work of the Spirit. Right? The fruit of the Spirit that is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. Self-control. We can quench the Spirit, which is what Paul explains in 1 Thessalonians 5.19. That's what will happen if we despise prophetic utterances or His instructions. It's what will happen if we fail to abstain from every form of evil. We will quench the Spirit. So holiness has direct bearing both on the effectiveness of our ministry as well as the fruit of the Spirit in our life. And so if you recognize that in your life, It really can't be consistently characterized by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and the rest. Well, then I think the first thing you need to do is you need to ask yourself, have you become tolerant of evil? And so as new covenant priests of Christ, again, we need to learn from the failure of Nadab and Abihu and hold fast To this principal aim of treating God as holy and honoring Him before all people. We also need to consider the priority of holiness for priests, which is point two. Now before we get there, I should address this too. The word holiness, I recognize, might not be comfortable for some hearers. It it, it might be a a bit off-putting because it sounds stuffy or arrogant. You wouldn't personally maybe want to be called holy because it sounds like self-righteousness. But holiness doesn't mean self-righteousness. That's just an abuse of the word. What what holiness essentially means is Leviticus 10.3, honoring God in all that we do. That's holiness. It's not self-righteousness. It's not religious snobbery. It's not being a prude. It's Treating God as holy and honoring Him in all that we do. This is exactly what you should want to be described as. This should be the greatest longing in your heart is to be holy. And for those around you to become holy. And so let's consider this as we look at the priority of holiness for priests. The deaths of the two men in the sanctuary present a massive problem. The sanctuary has been defiled and Aaron's sons who have been set apart for priestly ministry in the tabernacle because they've been sanctified. They can't touch the dead bodies because that would then defile them. And if they did get defiled, they too might be subject to the Lord's discipline. And so this is why Aaron's cousins have to remove the bodies. Notice in verse four, he says, come forward, carry your relatives away from the front of the sanctuary to the outside of the camp. And so they came forward and carried them still in their tunics to the outside of the camp, as Moses had said. But besides defilement, the other problem was that their sanctification prevented them from mourning according to the usual customs. Again, remember what has just happened Put yourselves in their shoes. Their son, Aaron's sons, Moses' nephews, their brothers were just inflamed and torched before their very eyes by the God that they've come to worship because they got creative. I mean, imagine if your brother or your son was just killed by God. Their sanctification prevented them from the customs of mourning, which is why Moses sternly warns them, don't uncover your heads nor tear your clothes so that you will not die. And he will not become wrathful against all the congregation. But the whole house of Israel shall be well, the burning which the Lord has brought about. The, The usual custom of mourning was to pour ashes on their head, but they had sanctified robes on. It was to to tear their clothes, but they couldn't do that. They were sanctified. They had to prioritize honoring God even over expressing their grief. The, The honor and glory of God trumped the societal expectations upon them. I mean, you can imagine the whole rest of the congregation watching As they see the priest just continue to go about what God had commanded them. And wondering, don't they care? Aren't they going to mourn? They're not doing anything different. But they couldn't. Because they had been sanctified. Honoring God trumped those expectations. And likewise, we who were priests under the new covenant, we need to prioritize holiness even over society's expectations of us. Maintaining our holiness has priority even over giving expression to our personal feelings. And we live in a society that, that functions very differently, right? In fact, giving expression to your personal feelings, you could say, is the defining element in our culture. So even though it's now become normative to demand our rights when offended, Christians should care more about what Jesus said in Matthew 5:39. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forced you to go one mile, go with them two miles. I mean, that sounds a little ridiculous in our culture. i got to stand up for my rights. i got to express how angry I am that somebody would personally offend me. That there would be some microaggression. And even though it's become normative in our culture to engage in all forms of sexual activity outside of marriage, Christians are guided by... What Peter says, that we are to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Despite how much lust we might have, desire for sexual intercourse, we're not guided by what we feel like, but what is going to most honor God. And despite the rampant materialism and the assumption, possibly by your family members or your friends, that what makes a person significant is how much money they make. Christians are guided by Paul's counsel to Timothy, that godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we shall be content. Most of you know the story of Eric Little, who's the the famous Scotsman, whose story was um, immortalized in in the movie Chariots of Fire. He was an Olympic athlete, the fastest man in the world, and he was going to run the the key race, which was going to be the 100 meters. But they put it on a Sunday. And being a Presbyterian who honored the Sabbath... The Lord's Day, Little refused to run because he prioritized holiness over even what his country expected. And despite being ridiculed by his countrymen and even the British Olympic community for being a fanatic, for being unpatriotic, he steadfastly refused to run on Sunday. And Eric Metaxas, his biographer, says it well. His perspective was quite different from the norm. And his ultimate goal was not merely to win his race or even to compete, but to glorify God. And that would be unthinkable if there was a if there was an athlete that said, "I care more about God, glorifying God than my football team winning." He would be out of a job. Because winning's everything, right? Winning's everything in our culture. No, it's not. Not if you're a Christian. Eric Little recognized what Moses teaches here. That holiness must be prioritized above all things. Which brings us to the perpetual statute for priests. See, something rather shocking happens in verse 8. Notice that the Lord speaks directly to Aaron. Aaron. And that's shocking because this is the first time and it is the only time God speaks only to Aaron. He's been speaking to Moses through Moses this whole time. Now, if God is going to audibly speak to you one time in your life and he's going to say something, my guess is that you're going to listen and that it's important. Which all the more should give us pause as we look at what he says. Do not drink wine or strong drink, neither you nor your sons with you, when you come into the tent of meeting, so that you will not die. It is a perpetual statute throughout your generations. And the fact that this is even brought up, it seems to indicate that alcohol alcohol probably had something to do with Nadab and Abihu's sin. But God goes on to explain why it is that alcohol was to be prohibited. And he gives two reasons. First of all, for discernment. He says it so as to make a distinction between holy and profane, between the unclean and the clean. Again, the priests were responsible for conducting the whole of tabernacle worship. They had to know what was right to do in the worship service and what was wrong to do. They had to be able to discern between an unclean animal and a clean animal that was being offered up. But if they were inhibited by alcohol, they might not be able to perform that responsibility. Alcohol inhibits our decisions. Paul gives similar instruction to the Ephesians. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is and do not get drunk with wine for that's debauchery, but be filled with the spirit. Again, we need to discern the will of the Lord. Therefore, do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And notice also this wise instruction to kings from Proverbs. Proverbs 31, verse 4. It is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to take strong drink, lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and pervert the rights of the afflicted. They need to be able to make good decisions as kings. The other reason that's given, though, is that they have a responsibility to teach effectively. Look at verse 11. So don't drink alcohol so as to teach the sons of Israel all the statutes which the Lord has spoken to them through Moses. So the priests were supposed to proclaim All that the prophets would reveal. Aaron as priest was to proclaim what Moses was revealing to him. And likewise as new covenant priests, we have this same responsibility. Remember the Great Commission? Go into all the world, preach the gospel. Baptizing people in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And... Teaching them all that I have commanded you. It's given to the church. Our responsibility as priests in the new covenant. Is to teach all people what God has commanded. So since Christians are called to both maintain discernment and to teach. I think in the very least this should give us pause in the consumption of alcohol. And that's not to say that Christians can never consume alcohol. But in the in the in the very least, I think we should exercise strong caution when we choose to do so. And if you want just a, a simple verse on how we might guide ourselves and when it might be appropriate or not, first Corinthians ten thirty-one. And whatever you do, whether you eat or whether you drink, do all for the glory of God. What will most Glorify God in this situation. Whereas verses 8 through 11 instructed the priests on what not to drink, verse 12 begins a section on what to eat. In fact, there's a lot of instruction regarding eating. That kind of actually continues even over into the next chapter, chapter 11. And what Moses is doing is he's instructing them essentially to finish their job as priests. By continuing to eat their portions of the sacrifice. So they need to fulfill their responsibilities as priests. But at the same time. This presents a major problem. Which brings us to the problem of human priests. Verse 12. After instructing them. To eat the grain offering. And the peace offering. Moses becomes aware that the sin offering had been completely burnt up. And this is a problem because that part, that offering, part of that offering was supposed to be eaten by the high priest, but it had been completely consumed. And by not eating it, Aaron was actually treating this sin offering as the same offering that should have been used to cleanse the holy place. There was a sin offering that could be used to cleanse the holy place, but this was... Not for that purpose. It was to make atonement for the congregation. And Aaron's reasoning for why he didn't eat the sin offering is that he felt unfit to act as priest in that regard because of what had happened during the day. The minutes or hours before Apparently Aaron figured it would have been better to allow that sin offering to just be completely consumed on the altar than to eat a part of it when he might fail in his role as mediator because there was a turmoil between um, wanting to serve God and yet having difficulty with what God had just done. So he knew what God wanted him to do but because of the grief and the anguish that he was experiencing in his heart he felt like he couldn't do it appropriately it would be defiling to even the sin offering that he would consume if he were to do it and he didn't know what to do and so according to him he thought the best next step would have been to just allow it to be burnt up and so Aaron honestly asks whether eating would have been good in God's sight now notice that We're not told if it was or not, which is telling. Instead, what we're told is it was good in Moses' sight. Aaron asked if it's good in God's sight, but the text doesn't tell us. It just tells us it was good in Moses' sight. And I believe what this shows us is that Aaron actually failed. He failed in his role as high priest. He did not do what he was supposed to do, and he failed Because of his human weakness. His humanity, his love for his sons, conflicted with his responsibility to be a faithful high priest. His humanity was at odds with his convictions. He was grieved by what the Lord had done, and he didn't feel like being in a worshipful mode. And that's why you can see Moses sympathizes with him. He understands because Moses, too, is human. These were his nephews that were killed. He loved them, too. He could sympathize with Aaron's loss while recognizing his failure. And of course, Aaron would not be the only high priest to struggle with a conflict of emotions. Remember these famous words. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. We have a high priest that is both faithful, not like Aaron. And merciful. Like Moses. We have a merciful and faithful high priest. Remember what it said in Hebrews 2.17. We read it earlier. Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. In things pertaining to God. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. See God. Sent his son into the world so that we might have such a high priest, because God recognized, if it was not apparent already, of course He knows all things, but this this chapter shows how apparent it is. God recognized that no son of Adam would ever be good enough to be a high priest; he would always fail. For even minutes after the tabernacle priesthood had been established, they fail. And this is the same pattern we've seen throughout biblical history. Noah, or sorry, before Noah, after Eden, right after God had created the Garden of Eden. We don't know if it's hours or days or months, but the one command that he gives, Adam fails. And then after a place of worship was established outside the Garden of Eden, and Cain and Abel come to offer sacrifices, Cain then kills his brother. Then there's the flood and what happens right after the flood? Noah brings a sacrifice, an offering, ascending to God. And what happens right after that? He gets drunk and then Canaan is cursed. So then we, we go through Abraham and all of his sons. Eventually we get to Israel in Egypt and they're rescued miraculously with a powerful hand and an outstretched arm. A people being rescued for his own possession. They come to Mount Sinai. They they see the presence of God descend upon the mountain in fear and trembling. They hear the voice of God speak. They they beg that Moses would intercede as a mediator. They they're given the law. And Moses to. To get more instructions, ascend upon the mountain. And while he is there, they create a golden calf the very next day. Do you see the pattern? But it doesn't stop there. It continues into even the New Testament. Peter blows it right after the Last Supper. Beginning of the church in Acts, you have Ananias and Sapphira lying to the Holy Spirit. And this pattern of humanity continues throughout history that even with clear commands we cannot remain ritually pure we will always fail which is why john 3:16 god knew we would fail and God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And you might be thinking, or may have thought, I did. Man, God seems so cruel to just consume Nadab and Abihu. But you see, you see, the, you see the full character of God? He was not going to allow his holiness to be defiled. He, he couldn't. He had to maintain his holiness. He had to protect the tabernacle system as he had developed it for Israel's good. He couldn't just allow it to be destroyed like that. And I think that's why he doesn't consume Aaron is he, he has compassion on him and he overlooks Aaron's sin, not because he's saying it's right, but because he knew Aaron would fail. And so to make up for that failure, he, he would send his son to be a merciful and faithful high priest. In order to save man, God had to become man because he knew man would continue to fail. And so, as much as we even now try to maintain our holiness as new covenant priests, reality is we're going to fail. And that is why there is only one name under heaven whereby we must be saved. Jesus Christ. And it's by his work alone that we are made holy. But notice also it's by his work alone that we continue to be made holy. It's his work that keeps us holy. And therefore as we strive to apply these four principles of fleecy holiness... We we can have confidence in their effectiveness because it is God who is at work within us. Jesus Christ isn't just giving us a command. He's empowering us to actually live out these lives of holiness. We have the power to fulfill these commands. Right. Notice what Paul says in Colossians 128. We proclaim him admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. This is why a Christian can fulfill the great exhortation given in Leviticus 10.3. By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. And before all people, I will be honored. We can fulfill that command because Christ mightily works within us. Let's pray for his help. Father, we are we, humbled. We're struck by the intensity of this passage. In our context, it, it almost seems mythical. Could you have really done these things? And yet we 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 wholly believe your word. And Lord, we uh, We want to be holy. We don't want to be disciplined, and we. It's not just that we don't want to dishonor you in any way, and and we're compelled we want to be more holy we want to honor you with all of our lives we we no longer want to be driven by our wants our desires our conveniences we want to show to a watching world that you are to be treated as holy and so we want to honor you before all people christ empower us towards that end and we will strive Trusting in your power. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.